Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My guest today is Sarah Abbott, who is a master of wine, and Sarah is also the founder and CEO, sounds very, very <laughs> sort of intimidating, <laughs> of Swirl Wine Group, which is based in the UK. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So, great name, Swirl. Thank you. Yeah, I think it came to me after a couple of glasses. A couple of, of swirls. Yeah. <laughs> so, first question is, uh, you know, you are British, I guess. Yes. So, brief upbringing. So, I grew up in Bedfordshire in the country. My parents were not interested in wine particularly until my mother got a job running a really smart country house hotel and I got a job as a washer-upper when I was um, 12 and just through being exposed to that kind of life and seeing the whole buzz and the thrill of fine dining and they had an amazing wine cellar and the owner was French and my mum then started coming home with wine and I just started... So you say your mum started coming home with Frenchmen? With <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think so, although my parents did divorce. Um, Oops. But, um, well, we could edit that one out. But anyway, yeah, so, so I came from a family of great cooks, um, love flavour, love taste, and I was the first person in my family to work in wine. And really, it came out of that curiosity for flavour and place and occasion. I love seeing a room full of people celebrating and having the most amazing time, and I really associate wine with that. Okay, so you got into the wine trade sort of young. Did you sort of ever work at a wine shop? or? Well, not in wine shop so I did my I had all sorts of, uh, of jobs so I sold double glazing part-time that's a that was a really horrible job I did my first degree my first degree was in classics so I had a lot of interest in ancient history and actually so much of that connects then with what I then found out about the history of wine the classics department at university had a really good wine cellar and wine parties did you um, go to a proper university well I went to Newcastle upon Tyne which had a fantastic very strong classics department it's north of England, by the way. North, north England, England, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic city. And I stayed um, after my degree. I got a, a placement at Durham University. And then I was actually marketing image analysis software. Decided I wanted to work in wine. Took a massive pay cut. Went to run a country house hotel down in Gloucestershire. Organised the wine cellar. Found a lot of bin ends. Sold a lot of wine. Was visited by the main wine supplier who said, please, will you come and work for me? And that was then how I got into wine. So that was my 20s. And, and what was your um, job for them, selling the double-glazing division? Uh, so, um, so I actually, I'm, I think selling and getting to the point where the sale is almost inevitable is the most important thing there is. And it's not something that happens at the end of wine. It's without a sale, nothing happens. And I've really taken that with me. And I did do a lot of sales job and commission-based selling. And so, so my were you good then? Them, did you earn a good I living? I was good, but I never did so you know when you go into these very sales led jobs they give you a script and the script doesn't work the thing about selling is that you have to it's like matchmaking it's like you know putting the perfect marriage together between the product and uh, the customer but what I did for my first job in wine I was working for a domain bottle burgundy specialist and my role was to go around and sell burgundy to restaurants hotels small wine shops and I did a lot of events and tastings and I did a lot of events for them 
their customers and that was how I sold them the wine because um, something like Burgundy was more expensive you know it was a highly competitive market and Burgundy is all about context and story and, and history and, and actually the market then for Burgundy was not as sort of thirsty as it is now I really wish I bought a lot more Burgundy with my staff discount at that stage <laughs> rather than just buy it and drink it but anyway so I did that then I worked for an Italian wine specialist again very high quality um, Hacienda Agricola estates estate to um, state wineries was that a bit of a shock moving from the glorified heights of Burgundy to to the Lambrusco arena? No, it wasn't really. I mean, it was, uh, I suppose there are slight differences in business culture, but no, I mean, there's, I was working with high quality producers and I actually had a lot more responsibility and authority in my, in that role. And I was really allowed to get on with it. So I would take groups of winemakers from Italy, sort of come, get three or four over, and I would take them around. I would organize events for them and trips for them and visits with key customers. So experiential kind of wine It selling. was experiential, and was that quite was that quite unusual at that time? I don't know if it was unusual, but I I think that now the whole idea that in order to sell anything interesting in wine, you have to get people to try it and taste it, and, and everyone talks now about the story, but I think actually that's taken a while for it to be recognised. But what we found with selling that really good quality Italian wine, not not easy drinking everyday Italian wine, but anything of real quality and interest and value, is that you had to do it through independent retailers. And I would basically become a a sort of a a travelling almost expert and and I would parachute in I'd say to the shop okay well I'm bringing in two or three winemakers we'll come and do you a tasting I'll give you an overview get your customers there they can place orders on the night it's a, an absolutely no risk situation for you so you're your doing customers, all the work basically well that's what you you had to pull it through because it's a risk and the thing is that so if you're a winemaker in Suave, you know, your wine is everything to you. Your survival is everything to you. But actually, if you're the owner of a wine shop in, I don't know, Lewis, that Suave producer is not everything to you. And so you have to, if you want to pull through anything that's high quality and interesting, you have to take on part of that risk. You have to make it absolutely inevitable that the sale will happen. And um, and I think that experience when I was really going around, you know, driving around in my tiny car and pounding the, the streets, um, taking uh, taking around Italians. My dad actually used to lend me his BMW when I took the Italians around because he said, that, you know, they're Italians, they, they will want a proper car. <laughs> like, and it was such a good grounding for me in really understanding because you would see how consumers would react act you could see what worked and what resonated and also you could see that if you put the effort in people would buy a really high quality proper Lambrusco that was retailing at 20 quid they will buy it as long as they know that they like it it's a test drive isn't it it's a test drive we and we've got to test drive and in fact there are some marketing research research papers that go into buying cues for wine and they say that wine is the only purchase landscape that's as complex for consumer good as goods as wine is buying a car but actually you only buy a car once every couple of years and we're asking people to buy wine every week so it is a test drive and we and i think we don't do enough of that or we didn't do enough of that enough sampling yeah sampling is everything 
So what are the, um, I mean, how much of your business is Italian wine? Quite a small amount, actually. So my... Well, well that's the end of the show. Thanks yeah. very much for coming <laughs> in. Well, small, small and not so small. So I started, so my interest with Italian wine started with that um, importer. It's called Wine Traders, a guy called Michael Pally. When I did my Master of Wine, I did my Master of Wine dissertation in Barolo. When I set up my own business, I just found myself specialising in um, what you might call the weird stuff. So although I did my training in the classics, Burgundy, Barolo, and I worked for a Bordeaux specialist as well, I found as a marketeer that where you can really get your teeth into something is with wine that A, people don't don't know exist, or B, that people think is rubbish and snigger at. And the thing that I've done most of my work with is the, the former, actually, so these emerging terroirs. And I love the idea of beautiful terroirs that people don't even know are there. Such as? Oh, so I've done a lot of work with, for example, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Turkey. Those are the three main ones. So I've run campaigns for those three and found them importers, got them into the market. And I mean, I love all that, the creative side of wine and the tasting side of wine. But it's, if you, if you cannot sell it, that terroir has no voice and it will die. What about unknown terroirs in Italy? Have you worked with any sort so, of... Under, you'd mentioned Lambrusco, which ah, yeah, so again, is one of my favourites. Yeah, it's so my, it was Michael Pally, the master of wine, who set up Wine Traders, who introduced me. I mean, he, he's um, almost willfully determined to champion the very best, you know, even if it's a, a hard sell. But he introduced me to Lambrusco. But actually what happened with Italy is that I met the, the team from the Suave Consortio through running a volcanic wine masterclass for the Institute of Masters of Wine. I'm, I'm on the events committee. They had submitted some fantastic wines to this tasting and people at the tasting loved them. And all the reviews were full of this surprise that they had good wine coming from Suave. And I just thought, why Why is there this surprise? You know, it's a really old terroir, it's hillside vineyards, etc. And it just struck me that actually, so the French, for example, are very good with their major exporting wine appellations. So Chablis, for example, you've got a, a load of Chablis is made, an absolute ton of Chablis. And you've got Dovis at the top. You've got perfectly drinkable, bag-in-box Chablis at the bottom. Nobody produces Chablis. Bordeaux. I mean, you've got Bordeaux Rouge, your basic Bordeaux Rouge or Bordeaux Superior. That's your kind of Wednesday night glass of wine. Um, And you've got some of the greatest and most expensive wines in the world, and nobody produces those. And it's just, I think, that with lots of the Italian classics, Suave, even Val Policella, even Prosecco, the, the commercial success seems to come at the expense of recognition for the very best within that appellation even though the very best are as best you know are as good as uh, as great wines from anywhere so it was a different type of marketing challenge and um i think i was a slightly unusual choice of partner because italian wineries tend to like the structure of a big agency but the point is that when you're trying to introduce to a market the top quality and the different story of a big appellation you've got to think like you're a tiny new product you've got to be talking to the influencers it's, it's almost you've got to think more like a kind of guerrilla marketing campaign and um, so that started with Suave and I have now been 
approached by a couple of other Italian wine regions, although we haven't confirmed anything yet. It's so. a shame. Yeah. <laughs> Let us know as soon as you. I can kind yeah. of guess. I can sort of guess one of them, but we won't yeah. go there. But it's very interesting what you'll say about this. If it's Italian, it can't be expensive. Well, it t- so the average bottle price for Italian wine in the UK is four ninety eight. So, so that's, that's four pounds ninety eight. Four pounds ninety eight. So that's fourth from the bottom. So Germany's lowest, and but so New Zealand's top, then France, Australia, um, Spain. Spain has a higher average bottle price than Italy. Okay, so these are skewed because you will have top. I mean, we know there are top Italian wines being sold in the UK, but generally in the UK, you know, there's there's a lot of Italians are really good technically, so they're actually very good at providing very drinkable, refreshing, juicy whites and reds, and of course sparkling. You know, on time in the right kind of style, and and that's not to be sniffed at because that kind of commercial success is is the it's the absolute engine of an identity, and it's the engine of kind of survival in these rural economies. And they are basically it's all farming, but it is also the fact that the kind of the brand health of any country, if you think of a, a you know, the, the wine of a country as being like a kind of ambassadorial brand for that country. If you are focused on those lower price sectors and only those lower price sectors, it becomes, it's slightly dangerous because it means that you're constantly being squeezed on the margin for your producers. And your reputation then starts to be associated with that style of wine, that kind of, that's as much as you can do. And I think this may be related to this kind of, the, the way that Italy finds it harder to get recognition for the nuance of quality within its bigger appellations compared to the French. It's funny, isn't but it? I think you you go- go- sorry, oh yeah, but... Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but, um, say it's classic English, is, two, two English yeah, people... Yes. Yes. Sorry, like, sorry, sorry, sorry. For <laughs> four hours, nothing no, gets No, please, done. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I think that the it's a really important that the work of the the academy that Ian Daggett is doing with Finitaly, when you actually are saying it's really important that we talk about the nuance of these terroirs, that you give the top Italian wines exactly the same kind of really connoisseurs geeky, dedicated attention that you give to the great wines of France, because the wines do deserve it, Mm -hmm. it's just that they haven't had that same culture lavished on them you think of some of the classics, obviously, you know, we, we, Brunello is an expensive wine. The top Chianti um, Classicos are fairly expensive, not ridiculously expensive. I think they're still underpriced. You know, for me, Orvieto is a classic white wine, and yeah. it's just disappeared off the face of the earth. Lambrusco is potentially a world-class wine of its, of yeah. its genre, and it's never going to sell for the kind of price that, say, even a moderate Burgundy, red Burgundy, would sell for. How can that change? Is it yeah. going to change? Is there any way that it can change? Or yes. people just going to say that, no, Lambrusco is going to be below X price point, and I, that's it? I will never take that for an answer. If it hasn't succeeded, it's just because you haven't taken it to market in quite the right way. You haven't spoken to the people who are likely to love it. You haven't taken the risk sufficiently to persuade importers to take it on. So all of the, it's basically the classic marketing curve. Where you live in in the marketing sense with products like that is that you live in that, if you imagine the marketing curve, you know, it comes along up into the hump, then down, you know, and in that little first little line is all the early adopters. Now, 
their early adopters in terms of the crazy specialist importers who people like, you know, Red Squirrel in the UK, people like Knotted Vine, uh, people like Clark Voister, all these absolutely fanatical, wine-loving, they're proper business people, but they will, oh, people like Indigo, all these people who are determined to bring in the very best from a particular region and get it into then their early adopters who are typically world-class restaurants. And I don't just mean fine dining, but even great informal dining restaurants. So you first of all have to persuade the importers who are not driving Bentleys. You know, they're not shipping, you know, million bottles of, um, of uh, you know, 5.99 Prosecco. They're shipping mixed pallets of wine that has got to be hand-sold by them to people who've then got to hand-sell it to their customers. So it's absolutely doable, but you just have to be realistic about what it will take and how long it will take. But if you don't do that, this is one of the things that frustrates me about working with, you know, some of the generic bodies is that the little guys are so important to the big guys because it's the little guys who create the the excitement, the thrill, and the interest. But the big guys are so important to the little guys because they're the ones who are able to plan for investment in the market, who are able to actually create initial awareness of a, of a wine country or a wine region. I see time and time again in every country that I deal with this tension that gets set up between what are perceived as the opposing interests of the big producers the big boys and the small the producers. And it's like an ecosystem. If you don't have the thrilling wines made by people who see it as a birth, you know, then and anything about that really high top quality, okay, several generations later, you'll find they're doing quite nicely, thank you, because they've built in all that association and added value into that brand. But to begin with, you know, it's it's an absolute, it's like a kind of, um, like almost like a sacrificial thing, you know, it's like almost a spiritual thing. They dedicate themselves completely. A leap of faith. Into, to making this stuff. And they have to then find importers who have that same almost willful, optimistic dedication to taking these wines that are so beautiful and selling them to people who are also slightly crazy because anyone can give their wine away. The easiest thing in the world is to sell shed loads of fairly, you know, of, of wet wine. <laughs> wine is just wet and inoffensive. And that's okay. People need wet, inoffensive wine. But if that's all you do and all you talk about, you won't ever create the possibility for being accepted for transcendent quality and and you need both really and I think that's the that's something I think Italians could learn from if you look at what Australia do Australia they had a hard time and they have come back into a structure well, we could get you up on the Italian wine podcast, actually. You know, we're just churning out podcasts at sort of, you know, below production cost <laughs> for our supermarket audience. So what we need to do is maybe do, like, do one podcast every two years, age it in barrel maybe for 15 months, ah. and then hand sell it to a to a sort of bespoke audience somewhere but in the middle of I'm the I'm not UK. sure you've got the inherent terroir. You know, you've... you've <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we're more kind of a, uh, well, like a jolly, a... I think we're more of a jolly Rufus. Yes. <laughs> a, a smile then, on your face no. when you said that, you looked me straight in the eye and <laughs> challenged me. But there's nothing wrong with being a jolly, you know, fruity, easily digestible thing. Um. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Um, Sarah, but it's been uh, great talking to you. And I, I honestly, I know nothing about marketing and um, branding and brand positioning, but I've learned a lot um, just listening to you. And had I met you a while ago, I would have probably done better in my marketing exam, <laughs> which was a big staging post in my life. Oh, but, um, yeah, it's, it's great to uh, see you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to hear you. your enthusiasm, not just about um, wine in general or Italian wine in particular, but just about you obviously clearly absolutely love your job. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, yeah, I shines feel through. very, very lucky to yeah. be doing what I do. Half an hour, you haven't stopped smiling. You can't see <laughs> that on the radio or on the <laughs> podcast, but, but you okay. haven't stopped smiling. Okay. All right. <laughs> thank I you. hope to catch up with you again. Thank you. Thanks too. a lot, Sarah. Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.